Hey folks, Andy Patton here with Locked on Zags. We're starting this week out talking about what happened in that Duke game on Black Friday. How worried fans should be in another jam-packed episode of Mailbag Monday answering listener-submitted questions all episode long here on Locked on Zags, part of the Locked on Podcast Network. You are Locked on Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network. Your team, every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I am your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to take you through another season of Gonzaga Hoops. Today's episode is brought to you by NetSuite. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. Head to netsuite.com slash NCAA for a special end-of-the-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. I want to thank all of you for making this show, Locked on Zags, your first listen of the day. I know some of you have been with me from the very beginning. Some of you are much newer to the show. Either way, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen and now to watch on YouTube. That's right, Locked on Zags is available on YouTube. Just head to youtube.com, search Locked on Zags. It'll be on my social media accounts as well. We didn't quite hit 200 subscribers ahead of the Duke game. We came very, very close, close enough that I think we can still hit it ahead of the Tarleton State game on Monday night. Certainly, certainly we'll be at 200 subscribers before the battle in Seattle when Duke takes on, or excuse me, Duke, when Gonzaga takes on Alabama in that game. I will be at that game, hopefully getting a chance to meet some of you all, hopefully with 200 subscribers under my belt on Locked on Zag. So please go hit that subscribe button if you have not already. Like I said in the intro, today is Mailbag Monday. Tons of questions. We're going to talk Duke. We're going to talk about specific players. We're going to talk some scheduling stuff as well. A reminder for many of you who are newer to the show or some of you who are not newer to the show but just need a reminder, this is how to get involved in Mailbag Monday. It's very, very simple. You can tweet at me at ScoreZagScore whenever you are thinking of a question. Helps to tag at Mailbag Monday, but either way, I'm going to take the question. I'm going to write it in my notes. I'm going to answer it on Sunday evening when I record these shows. I also post a tweet on Sunday morning soliciting questions. You can respond to that tweet. It guarantees you you'll have, you will have your question answered in the show. I also get questions on Instagram or on Facebook, or you can email me. This is probably the most common way to get questions now at andypatton 13 on gmail.com. Shoot me an email there if you have multiple questions, if you have a longer question you want to flesh out. If you just want to chat with me, you can email me, andypatton 13 I'll get your questions answered there. All right, this first question in segment one comes from Strike Nowhere on Twitter who asks, is Gonzaga destined to be a footnote in Coach K's last season or are the Zags going to finally win the dang thing this year? Okay, all right. So I figured we would get some questions like this. We're going to start with this one out of the way. First of all, there are going to be 66 other teams competing for the NCAA championship. There is in no way, shape, or form a foregone conclusion that it'll be won by either Duke or Gonzaga, of course, those are probably your two front runners in the betting game right now, Purdue, Kansas, Villanova, Kentucky. Tons of other teams are going to be in that conversation as well. Obviously, Gonzaga falls to Duke by three points, 84-81 on Friday night. For those of you who may have missed that game, uh, very, very tightly contested game. We're going to talk a ton about it here in this game. I think there's a very good chance that one of Gonzaga or Duke wins a national championship. I said there's 66 other teams. There obviously are. Those are two really, really good teams. I'm not concerned 
that Gonzaga losing a game in November has any bearing on the national championship game. Most teams who win the national championship lose games in November or December or January or some point during the season. The last team to not win a game until the national championship and then also in the national championship was in 1975. I was not born yet. A lot of you were not born yet. This doesn't happen all that often. So Gonzaga losing to a very good Duke team by three points when they made some mistakes, things that they can tighten up, doesn't tell me anything about who's going to win the national championship. It does say that there are some things the Zags can work on, and that's what we're going to talk about in these next couple questions. This next question comes from John via Gmail. He says, now that we have played seven games, what does Gonzaga have to do to improve in order to beat Duke next time or better yet, win a national championship. They're probably going to have to do both those things. They're probably going to have to beat Duke to win a national championship. He says, how do we need to improve against those big physical teams like Baylor and Duke? Yeah, I think the biggest thing in this game is Gonzaga was unable to get into their offensive sets because of the physicality of, of Duke's guards up, out, away from the basket. Gonzaga starts their offense around the three-point line. They start running their high ball screens at that point. That's when they either do the pick and roll actions or they keep moving off of that. But it's the it's the way that they start their offense. They were unable to get there. This is the only way that teams have figured out how to stop Gonzaga's post scoring. Do not let Gonzaga get the ball to their posts. Texas had a, a unique strategy to attempt to prevent Gonzaga from getting the ball to Drew Timmy. It did not work. Duke came out with a different strategy, which was basically bully Gonzaga's guards as soon as they cross half court. Duke also had the physicality to do that. That is an issue. That is something Gonzaga needs to address because it's also what Baylor did effectively to neutralize Gonzaga's post scoring. Two teams have tried this successfully. Now, they are the two of the best teams, probably the two best non-Gonzaga teams of the last two seasons combined. So it's not like this is a strategy that no offense, Tarleton State can run out effectively. They can try it. It will not work. Most teams, basically every team, this will not work. But it does work for the best teams in college basketball. And Gonzaga needs to have a backup plan that is not shoot a bunch of threes and miss them, which is what they attempted in this game and, frankly, what they attempted against Baylor as well. So they do they do have some things they need to figure out. How do we improve in those things? It requires a new offensive set, whether they move Chet farther away from the rim and get him the ball sooner because he's big and tall and can hold the ball away from those guards, whether it's a similar strategy with Drew Timmy, whether they go into a different offensive set entirely. I don't know the exact answer, but they need to figure it out. The other stuff will come. It was a bad three-point shooting night for the Zags. They got in foul trouble early. They were careless with the basketball. They turned it over. All that stuff, I think, will get tightened up. None of that stuff is things I'm overly concerned about because I think they're things that they can fix. But figuring out a way to get the ball to their big men sooner in the offense when the when the guards are getting pressured physically that that soon across half court is something that Mark Few and his staff needs to figure out. This next question comes from Brian Mary at BMaryZag on Twitter who says, What weakness exposed against Duke is most important to address before the Alabama game? And what weakness exposed against Duke most impacts our chances of winning the national championship? So I sort of addressed the second one with the big physicality getting the ball to the to the scorers earlier or sooner or in a different way. So I'm kind of going to leave that part. Uh, for Alabama specifically, it's the turnovers. I don't think that the turnovers are a giant issue that's going to plague the Zags a lot this season. It was an issue against Duke in part because they have the size and physicality to match up with Gonzaga's guards in a way that no other team Gonzaga has faced this year can do, in part because the guys just had bad games. Andrew Nembard had a bad game. There were times when he made careless, lazy passes and just mistakes, just overthrew the ball in ways that he doesn't normally do. 
Chet Holmgren inbounded the ball before looking to make sure the guy was open and then committed a dumb foul. Drew Timmy reached in on a guy for no apparent reason, committed his fourth foul. Those are mistakes that do not normally happen. They happen in part because the environment of the game, these guys were probably tired from playing their third game in five days. That's not an excuse as to why they lost. It's just an excuse to why they may have made some dumb mistakes. Those things I think are going to get tightened up. Against Alabama specifically, they do not have that size or that physicality. They have one guy in their rotation who's seven feet tall. He's a big dude. The rest of their team is not that big. They're not going to give Gonzaga the same problems that Duke did. So the only thing I'm worried about is the turnovers. Alabama plays fast. They get out in transition quick. They have the seventh highest tempo in the nation per Ken Palm. If Gonzaga's sloppy with the basketball and turning it over, they're going to get behind quick. Alabama can score 10 on you in a matter of seconds, basically, with the way that they play basketball. I don't think that Alabama trying to boat race Gonzaga is going to work. I don't think Gonzaga is going to lose this game. But I think if they are careless with the basketball, this is one of the few teams that can really punish them. Next up comes from Christian via Gmail. He says, is this a character building loss? My dad and I often discuss the merits of an early season loss and the opportunity to work on growth areas. Is this true here or is this really just a matter of turnovers and fouls? It's both. <laughs> I think it's kind of both. It's it's definitely a character loss. I think losing to Duke, the number two team in the country, on Black Friday by three points in a game where you shot poorly from three, you got an unnecessary foul trouble, you turned the ball over more than ever before. Yes, Duke lost Palo Bancaro, Bancaro for the most of the second half. Yes, Duke has some reasons to believe that they could have won this game by more than three points had things gone their way. They might be right. The point is when there's a three-point game and both teams feel like, ah, oh, we could have won that game or we could have won that game by more, it probably means the two teams are really, really close. And that's ultimately what this game is. Duke and Gonzaga are both very, very good teams. They are probably similar talent-wise. And if you played them 100 times, they'd probably win about 50 times each. That's just the nature of these two teams. I think that was the case with Gonzaga and Baylor, and we ran into one of the scenarios where Baylor boat raced Gonzaga. If you play that game 100 times, some of the time Gonzaga beats Baylor by 20-plus points too. It's just not what happened in the championship game here. It was a really, really tight one as well. I do think it's character building. A lot of young guys on this team who realized for the first time that, hey, we're beatable. <laughs> I think it's important to learn that for Julian Strother to learn, hey, I can have a really good game and this team can still lose. There is more that I can do. For Hunter Salas and Nolan Hickman, who didn't play a ton in this game, they're like, what can I do when, when a, a game like this happens again? If I'm Hunter Salas, who had a pretty solid night, he grabbed some good rebounds, looked good. If I'm him and I'm thinking, what can I contribute to this team that we didn't have on Friday? That's the attitude that those guys need to have. And you don't get that if you don't lose. You know what I mean? Like this is, It's important to lose these games in a sense because you get to see like, hey, what can I do better? What can we do better, I should say? We shouldn't always be focused on I. What can we do as a team better? How can we fix this? And I think that having that adversity, especially adversity in the sense of losing a November game that is ultimately pretty meaningless, is important and vital. This next question kind of leads into that is from Jacob Quarter 2 on Twitter who says, Is it weird to say that after Duke, I feel better about this team? The weaknesses of Gonzaga teams in the past is physicality. He mentions Florida State, Baylor, Texas Tech. And he says, but playing Duke that hard and only losing by three is a sign that this team has a lot of great fight in them. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I kind of wanted to end, end on this one when we're talking about the Gonzaga and Duke game because I don't feel like it's a bad loss. I don't have any serious concerns about this team. Duke's really good. Losing, by the number, losing to the number two team in the country by three when you didn't play your best basketball is by no means a bad loss. It's an encouraging loss. It's an educational loss. 
for this Gonzaga team. I think that's the main thing that we need to take away from this is that Gonzaga got better from losing this basketball game. They did. There's no doubt in my mind that Mark Few, Brian Michelson, Roger Powell, the rest of the staff will have this team in a better spot because specifically of what happened in this game. Because of the physicality of Duke's guards out in front, away from the perimeter. Because of how Mark Williams dominated in the paint. He was so, so good for Duke in that game. An outstanding performance from him. There are not a lot of other Mark Williams in the country, but there are some. And Gonzaga's seen one now. They know how to play against that. This is a good loss for this team. And I don't feel any worse about this team. It was, it was a bummer to lose. It was frustrating to see them turn the ball over in ways that they haven't done much this season. It's frustrating to not see them shoot well from beyond the arc when we had seen that starting to come around early in the season. But again, it was a good loss, a loss that I don't think Gonzaga fans should feel too upset about because it's probably going to make them better come March. All right, that's a wrap on the Duke game. We're done. It's over. It happened. We're going to move on. We're going to talk about some individual players, talk about some scheduling stuff as we get into the next portion of the season. Before we get there, though, I want to tell you all about prize picks. PrizePix is daily fantasy made easy. I love this app, and I know that you will too. PrizePix is a leader in daily in college sports daily fantasy. They offer more college football props than anyone in the world and offer all the star players from not only the Power 5 schools, but your favorite mid-major programs as well. New users that deposit and use the promo code LOCKEDON will receive a 100% instant deposit match of up to $100. PrizePix allows mixed sport entries, so you can take the over on Chet Holmgren combined with the under on Patrick Mahomes in the same entry. Use the award-winning app on both the App Store and Google Play. Entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy. Don't hesitate. Check out prizepix.com and use promo code LOCKEDON or go to your App Store and download the app today. PrizePix is daily fantasy made easy. All right, segment two, still answering listener-submitted Mailbag Monday questions all episode long. This first one, it says, Hi, this is Kenny from Florida. If you had to bet right now, do you think we're the number one ranked team on Selection Sunday? Hi, Kenny. Yes, I do. But really close. I think that's like 52-48% odds in my mind on whether Gonzaga is going to be the number one team on Selection Sunday. It's going to be really close. Ultimately, in my mind, I don't think that it matters because they're going to be a number one seed. I would be very, very surprised. It would be a pretty epic collapse for them not to be a number one seed. So I don't know how much it really, truly matters. Duke's going to lose in the ACC. They're going to lose a game or two. They're not going to be undefeated going into Selection Sunday, I don't think. I'd be very surprised if they were. Hats off if they are. Kudos. But I don't think that they will be. Gonzaga could conceivably win out. They, they got some tough games on the schedule. They got BYU twice. They got St. Mary's twice. One of those teams probably three times. Potentially both those teams three times, depending how the WCC tournament shakes out. San Francisco's good. Obviously, they got Alabama and Texas Tech still in the non-conference slate. So it's, it's not going to be easy. But I'm inclined to believe that Gonzaga loses one or less games for the rest of the season, whereas Duke probably loses two, maybe three, in which case Gonzaga would potentially leapfrog them and take over first place. Of course, Purdue could be in that mix as well. So I'm not super confident that Gonzaga is the number one overall team when we get into Selection Sunday, but I think it's more likely than not. This next question is another one from Christian. He says, what games will test the Zags the rest of the non-conference and conference schedule? If you looked ahead and ranked the most challenging five games on the Zag schedule, what would that list look like? He offered his list, which is number one at BYU, number two Alabama, number three Texas Tech, number four at USF, and number five BYU at home. 
So I think that's a pretty solid list, but I'm going to change it a little bit. I think St. Mary's poses more of a threat to Gonzaga than San Francisco. I don't know that I think St. Mary's is a definitively better team than USF. I think they're both very close. But in terms of who is going to, who's more likely to defeat the Zags, St. Mary's in Moraga is a tougher game. They have more size. They really slow the pace. So does San Francisco, but they really, really slow the pace. They play this hideous, ugly style of basketball that has made Randy Bennett very well known in coaching circles, despite the fact that it is really tough to watch. But that has worked against Gonzaga in the past. He has a recipe that has defeated the Zags in the past. They have more size, more physicality, more experience than San Francisco. I don't think the Dons are... are going to beat the Zags this year. I think they can keep it close. I think they can give them some challenges. But I think if I was picking which of those games is more difficult, I would pick at St. Mary's. I also think that Texas Tech is underrated in this list. In fact, I changed my list. Here's my list. Number one, Texas Tech in Phoenix. Number two, at BYU. Number three, at St. Mary's. Number four, Alabama. That's basically a home game for the Zags. I think that's a huge advantage for them. And then number five, BYU at home. At San Francisco's in the mix. St. Mary's at home is in the mix. Uh, Those are some tough games as well, but I think that's probably the core five. If Gonzaga loses one or more games the rest of the season, I'd be very surprised if they don't come out of that five five games right there. This next question comes from Thomas via Gmail. He says, what would you trade for BYU and St. Mary's to make it to the second weekend? A loss to each, being swept, etc. It would be nice to have a showing and prove the WCC is better than some think, but at what cost to Gonzaga? Yeah, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not really sure how either of these teams beating the Zags helps either of those teams advance further in the NCAA tournament. I think obviously them beating Gonzaga would help them get a better seed in the NCAA tournament. So there's kind of a correlation causation issue I have with this question. Uh, certainly if one of them beating Gonzaga ensures they make the tournament when they otherwise would not make the tournament, I think I would take that. But at this point, Gonzaga, BYU, and St. Mary's all seem very, very likely to make the tournament. It does not mean that they will. If if St. Mary's somehow loses six games in the WCC and loses to Portland or Pepperdine or whatever, then yeah, they could fall out of favor. They don't have a great non-conference schedule. They help themselves a lot by doing what they did in, in, in Maui, in the Maui Invitational, which was held in Las Vegas. They help themselves a ton in that regard. I think they're going to make the NCAA tournament. BYU is basically a lock at this point to make the NCAA tournament. It would be a very epic collapse for them. I think to answer this question, if a fourth team could make the NCAA tournament and it would require them to beat Gonzaga, I think I would take that. If the Dons beating Sam, excuse me, beating Gonzaga in San Francisco is what it takes for them to get over that hump and earn like an 11 or a 12 seed in the NCAA tournament, I take that. That that is that is something I'm willing to give up because it probably costs the Zags the number one overall seed, but it probably doesn't cost them the number one seed. Period. Although. It's hard to say exactly how that would shake out, but I would be willing to accept that. Uh, Gonzaga getting a one seed still, but it allows San Francisco to make the NCAA tournament, assuming that we lose to them at one point. That's something I would take. Next question comes from Strike Nowhere on Twitter who asks, will Fuse ex- rotation extend past nine, given that he switches between Greg and Perry for the ninth spot? Uh, against ben- bad teams, sure. Yeah, against Tarleton State tonight, depending when you're listening to this. Yeah, I think we'll see both those guys quite a bit. Against Merrimack, against Northern Arizona, those types of games, absolutely. Against good teams, not at all. No chance. We saw it on uh, against Duke, even with foul trouble significantly impacting the front court. Ben Gregg did not play at all. Caden Perry played four minutes. Uh, Mark Few would play six if he could. I mean, quite frankly, against... 
uh, in that game against Duke, Mark Few was pretty content to play the five starters and Anton Watson. We did see Hunter South. We did see Nolan Hickman. Not a ton of minutes for either of those guys. We saw Caden Perry out of pure necessity because of foul trouble. We did not see anybody else. Mark Few does not want to play more than seven guys. He really doesn't. He's playing eight right now, and I think he's okay with it, but I do not think... I don't think we're going to see nine consistently in the rotation, and I absolutely do not think we are going to see more than nine this season at all. Again, against Portland, sure. Against some of these bad non-conference games, absolutely. But consistently a rotation of nine or more, not going to happen. This next question comes from Mike Curtis at Upper95215 on Twitter, who asks, Were you surprised to see only four minutes from Caden Perry and zero from Ben Gregg on Friday, even when all our bigs were in foul trouble? No, I was not. (laughs) I was not at all. I think... There has been a lot of helium for Ben Gregg and Caden Perry uh, and certainly for the rotation to be expanded this year because of the depth of talent that they have. Because in the exhibition games and the first game against Dixie State when Brian Michelson was the head coach, when Brian Michelson was the head coach, we saw the team expand the rotation, play 10 in the first half, do all that stuff. We also saw some games this year where Mark Few took over, where we saw a little bit more of Caden Perry, more of Ben Gregg. Again, it wasn't in any of the good games, but it was against some of the, you know, outside the top 300 ranked Ken Palm teams that we started to see a few more uh, action from those guys. But in this game, I, I Mark Few had zero intention of playing either Caden Perry or Ben Gregg. Zero. He played Caden Perry because he had to, because there was foul trouble. I'm not saying I agree with this. I want to be clear. I, I've said this multiple times that I'm adamant that Mark Few is not going to play those guys. It's not because I think they're bad. It's not because I think they are not capable of playing at this level. It's because Mark Few just doesn't want to play them. This is what he does. He, he doesn't view these guys as being members of the rotation against these caliber of opponents right now. He played Caden Perry. Perry looked fine. He he you know he didn't do a great job of guarding Bancaro, but nobody did, so I don't think you can hold that against him necessarily. But I'm, I was not surprised that those guys played very, very little. Mark Few did not have any intention of playing them in this game. All right, two segments down. Coming back in the third segment, we're going to answer more listener-submitted questions. Before we get there, though, let's talk about NetSuite. This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system out there to power your company's growth. With visibility and control of your finances, inventory, HR, planning, budgeting, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow as a company all in one convenient location. NetSuite lets you automate your processes and close your books in no time while keeping you ahead of your competition. In fact, 93% of businesses surveyed increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite, and right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at netsuite.com slash NCAA. Head to netsuite.com slash NCAA for special end-of-the-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. netsuite.com slash NCAA. Today's episode is also brought to you by Built Bar. Bilt Bar is the best tasting protein bar ever, plain and simple. It's a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Bilt Bar has nine delicious flavors, including some all-time favorites like raspberry, mint brownie, peanut butter brownie, coconut, and my personal favorite, salted caramel. Of course, Bilt Bar is not only great tasting, they are healthy too. Most Bilt Bar flavors have 17 grams of protein, 130 calories, and just 4 grams of sugar. Nine amazing flavors, all tasty and all healthy. Go to BuiltBar.com now and use promo code LOCKED15 and you'll get 15% off your first order. That's BuiltBar.com, promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off your first order. 
right? Segment three, still Andy Patton, still locked on Zag, still answering listener-submitted questions all episode long for Mailbag Monday, my favorite episode of the week. Nice to kick things off, getting to interact with you all, hear your questions, get them answered on the show. This first question comes from Darren Olson at HeavyDo44 on Twitter, who said, I noticed Julian Strother's name in the first round on NBADraft.net. Can't ever blame anyone for taking the money, but would absolutely love to see him lead next year's team. Yeah, so with Julian really starting to show improvement on defense, I'm not surprised his draft stock is rising. That was kind of a big question mark for him. We knew he was a scorer. He came in, he's looked outstanding, scoring the basketball. He's been a great outside shooter. Beyond that, he's got a good float game. He's getting he's a great offensive rebounder, a fantastic offensive rebounder. Big physical guy down low for a guy of his size. He's 6'7". It's not like he's small, but you want to see some physicality out of your 6'7 guys, especially at the next level. And now beyond that, he looks like a good good defensive player, like not just like, oh, good for college, okay, the NBA, like good, like he could be a very good in-time player in the NBA. He's also just 20 years old, super young guy. I get it. I get why NBA teams are starting to show some interest here. He looks like a 3 and D wing that you could pretty much plug in right away. And if not, if you need a year or two for him to develop, by the time he's 22, 23, he's going to be really good. And I think if he starts, if he continues to play like this, NBA teams are going to come calling. At the beginning of the year, even for my best case scenarios for Julian Strother, I was hesitant about saying he's going to be a guy who goes to the NBA. I, I believe I did mention it as his best case scenario, but I'm not sure that I really believed it now. Absolutely. I don't know that it's a foregone conclusion by any stretch of the imagination. And I agree with Darren here that it'd be great if Julian came back and scored 20 per game next year for this Gonzaga team, minus Chet Holmgren, minus Andrew Nembhard and all the guys that end up leaving. But if the NBA comes calling this year, this is about as good as it's going to get. If he plays like this, averages 17, 18 points by the end of the year, he's going to get he's going to get a look, and, and he's going to be a first-round pick potentially, and, and I would not blame him for leaving if that ends up being the case. This next question comes from Christian. He says, Julian Strother and Rasir Bolton both had really good games. You discussed on multiple occasions where the Zags three-point shooting baskets might come from. This is it, right? He says, Bolton and Strother were 6 for 14 from beyond the arc at just about 43%. He said, I really like the inside-out approach in this regard. Yeah, this is it. This is where the three-point shooting is going to come from. It would be nice if we saw some more consistent outside shooting from Andrew Nembhard. It would be nice to see more consistent outside shooting from Chet Holmgren, which hasn't showed up yet. It's, it's, it, I'm not concerned about it, but it would be nice to see a little bit more of that. We've seen some games where he looks great. We've seen some games where he just doesn't knock him down. I'd love to see Nolan Hickman get more involved as an outside shooter. He's taken good shots. He just hasn't. They haven't been going, going, falling down for him yet. Anton Watson, Drew Timmy have taken a lot of threes, and it just, it hasn't been good. It has not. Been, it is not a part of their game at the actual playing level just yet. So for right now, the three-point shooting is Rasir Bolton and Julian Strother. They're both really good. <laughs> They're really, really good. I think Andrew Nemhard will be more consistent as the year goes on. But right now, those are the two guys who are going to knock down the threes. This next question comes from Strike Nowhere on Twitter, who asks. Will Andrew Nemhard dominate every opponent's point guard and walk away with the Bob Cousy Award? So a note here, this question was asked before the Duke game. I don't know if our friend Strike Nowhere would have asked it after the Duke game. Um, he did struggle in that game. He looked careless with the basketball. He was a little bit overwhelmed by the physicality of Duke's front court, or excuse me, backcourt. I don't think it was the, this damning performance from, from Andrew Nemhard where we should be seriously concerned about him. I still think he's the best point guard in the country. I still think he is a front runner, maybe not the front runner, but a front runner for the Bob Cousy Award. Um, and I think he's going to bounce back really nicely against Texas Tech, against Alabama once we get into the conference play. He's going to look really good there. So I'm absolutely still on board with him as a Bob Cousy Award finalist. But he does need to work on 
playing well against these big physical guards. He gets overwhelmed by them. We saw it in Baylor game. We saw it again here. Not just for Gonzaga, who needs him to be better at that, but the NBA scouts really need to see that he can do that because these big physical guards that Gonzaga, that have overwhelmed him in the past, that's who's in the NBA. They're pretty much all like that in the NBA. That's where Davion Mitchell is. That's where these guys from Duke are going to be. Like He needs to be able to prove that he can handle that kind of pressure from these guys because other than that, if he can't, he's not going to be an NBA player. So it's a it's a thing that needs to be worked on for Nampard. This next question comes from Tim Harrington at T-Bone Zag on Twitter. He says, Colby Brooks and Abe Eagle, are they both redshirting? Curious about their status in relation to the other walk-ons. Hey, second week in a row, I've been asked about Colby Brooks and his walk-on status. I love it. Uh, so yeah, they're not a part of the team this year in the sense that the Zags have a certain number of players that they are allowed to play in games this season. They have hit that number of players. Abe Eagle and Colby Brooks are not part of it. Plain and simple. They're on the roster. They are not taking up a scholarship spot. They are not taking up a spot on the active playing roster. They can just kind of sit in that world. That can just be a space that they exist for a long time. I don't think that they will. Certainly they might sit there until they graduate. They could sit there for longer if they wanted to. I don't know why they would or why Gonzaga would would want that to happen. But yeah, this is going to be the second straight season that both those guys don't get in the games at all. They're both on the roster last year. They're both on the roster again this year now. Matthew Lang, Will Graves, obviously are the walk-ons who are playing legitimate minutes. Joe Few is now a player who's playing minutes as well. These two guys just not getting into games. I'm very curious if they will stick around, if they will, you know, uh, matriculate us to being regular students, if they will transfer to other schools to play basketball, it, what they may end up doing. Uh, I'd love to see them get into some action. I think it's fun to see the walk-ons play, and, and these are two guys who who actually had pretty accomplished high school careers. Eagles 6'10", Coley Brooks is 6'7", and played like a legitimate small forward at a nice high school in the Los Angeles area, average like 11 and 8. So these are two dudes who can probably play a little bit, and we just haven't gotten a chance to play them, and, and unfortunately we're not going to this year. All right, last question of the show. This is another one from Christian. He says, I heard you on the Sack and Jack podcast talking about jerseys and wearing jerseys. Yeah, check out the Sack and Jack podcast if you haven't yet. Rob Sacre, former Gonzaga player, Jack Ferris, great, great podcast those two guys got. So I'm going to give him a little shout-out here. Christian goes on. He says, I have a growing collection of jerseys, and yes, I wear them as a grown-up deep, deep into adulthood. Are there rules on wearing jerseys? Game days and holidays only. You have mentioned wearing Dan Dickow's jersey on the 4th of July. And he says, because I wear my my jerseys over my dress shirt and tie more than occasionally at work. Maybe because I'm around teenagers all day, no one says anything. Is that a fashion faux, is that a fashion faux pas or is that a fashionista? So look, here's the deal. The rules for wearing jerseys are just gatekeeping BS in my mind. I don't think anybody should tell anybody else what to wear unless it is like highly inappropriate situation. You can tell people what to wear at funerals and at weddings and not a whole lot of other situations where I think it's uh, significant. Um, some people say you can't wear another man's name on your on your back past a certain age. Some say you can never do that. Some say you can only wear them at sporting events. I just don't care. Wear what you want. <laughs> like, like I like this question. I just... I think it's kind of silly to be overly critical of this uh, in any capacity. If you're somebody who judges what other people's wears super significantly, I I just think it's kind of a waste of brain space, (laughs) a waste of energy. I got to say, though, Christian, I'm going to be completely honest with you. It shocks me that you do not get made fun of for wearing jerseys over your shirt and tie in a high school setting because high schoolers are mean, dude. They're mean. And I cannot believe that you could just get away with that. Like, I would love to get away with that, but I don't think that I, don't think that I would get – certainly, I work from home, so I can I can do that. I can get away with wearing a Dan Dickow jersey at work. But 
I, I'm surprised that you get away with that. For me personally, I don't wear my jerseys very often. Uh, like I said, I wear the Dan Dickow jersey on uh, the 4th of July or my Dan or my John Stockton Team USA Olympic jersey on the 4th of July. I wear my green Celtics Kelly Olynyk jersey on uh, St. Patrick's Day. That's usually it. Uh, obviously, if I go to like a Blazers game, I wear my Zach Collins jersey. If I were to go to a Pacers game, I would wear my DeMontis Sabonis jersey. But other than that, I don't really wear them all that often. But I'm not one to tell other people when and how they should wear their jerseys. All right, another fun week at Locked on Zags coming your way. The Zags play Tarleton State on Monday night. Tuesday's show, we're, of course, going to recap that game. WCC Wednesday is going to come out on Wednesday, as you can probably guess. Andy Locks on Thursday. And then I'm going to have a guest come on for Friday's show where we're going to preview the battle in Seattle. Zags versus Alabama. Super fun game coming up. All of that right here on the Locked on Zags podcast. Available wherever you get your podcasts and available on YouTube as well. Hit that subscribe button. Search Locked on Zags on YouTube. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. I really appreciate it. Podcast links will also be available on Twitter at Locked on Zags and on my personal Twitter account, which can be found at ScoreZagsScore. Finally, thank you again for making this show your first listen of the day. Now's a great time to make your second listen of the day, the Locked on Bets podcast. Locked on Bets is your daily one-stop shop for all of your gambling needs. Hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling, don't miss Locked on Bets now. All right, thank you all for listening, and go Zags!